0: rugby RugbyRenegade.com, the number one online strength and conditioning program for rugby. Are you ready to get bigger, stronger, fitter, and faster and dominate your opposition? Welcome to the Rugby Renegade Podcast,
1: where we build machines. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Rugby Renegade Podcast. My name is Jamie Bain and today I'm interviewing Ashley Jones, Head of Strength and Conditioning at Edinburgh Rugby. Uh, Ashley is... Uh, as s coaches in rugby go, he's probably one of the most experienced coaches uh, going. Uh, he, he's worked with some awesome clubs. He's worked internationally. So he's worked with the top players and the top coaches uh, in, in both hemispheres, um, from Australia, uh, New Zealand, Crusaders. He's worked in Japan. And, of course, now he's he's up in Scotland with Edinburgh, and he was involved with Scotland during the World Cup. So um, really humble guy and really open to to uh, share his knowledge with us today. So uh, have a listen, and uh, I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Hi, Ashley. Uh, welcome to the Rugby Renegade podcast.
0: Thanks very much, Jamie. It's a great pleasure to be here after listening to Ed Collison speak a couple of weeks ago. It's, um, it's great that uh, uh, you were able to contact
1: me and uh, uh, have a chat. Oh, brilliant. It's great to have you on. Um, Ashley, as, as an S&C coach, um, your, your rugby CV is is pretty well-endowed with, you know, excellent clubs and you know different international teams. What, why don't you, we start by sort of telling us where you've worked and, and what successes you've had?
0: Yeah, um, I guess uh, I worked in, worked in basketball and rugby league in Australia before I had the opportunity to uh, work in rugby and uh, it's one of those situations where I was extremely fortunate to uh, interview for a position at the Crusaders in uh, 2003. Uh, and was accepted into their organisation starting with the, their ITN Cup, uh, then NPC team in 2003 and then rolled into the Trisades in 2004. So um, I guess if you're, a, as an and C coach, you're a product of the uh, the playing staff that uh, you have to work with and uh, when you had probably the two greatest players in their respective positions uh, with Dan Carter and Richie McCaw in that that team for eight years, which I was fortunate enough to work with, Um, My resume is going to be pretty solid because of those guys and and the support players around Mm. them. So I'm very, very fortunate to have been in the right place at the right time and uh, to um, have that as a kickstart to my uh, rugby career. And then uh, from that rolling into various positions um, throughout uh, the world of rugby to now find myself uh, in the beautiful beautiful city of uh, Edinburgh. So um, it's been, what now, it was 2003 to 13 years in professional rugby. So it's um, been a wonderful journey so far.
1: Yeah, and, and we appreciate you, you know, taking the time to sort of share some of that experience with us. Um, Ash, Not a problem. <laughs> I, I saw you speak at the UKSEA conference in uh, in the summer. And one of the yes. big big things you tried to get across was you were discussing the balance of, of art and science in your coaching and, and kind of how that's changed, you know, throughout your, your years. Um, could you sort of expand a bit on that? Sure, I think... Um... I think I was probably most, like most
0: strength and conditioning coaches, that come fresh out of um, a tertiary education program. Although in my generation it was physical education teaching or nothing. So obviously today there's a, there's a plethora of different uh, sports science courses that uh, people can use. But um, I would say I was probably 80 plus percent science and I just lacked the basic practical programming knowledge and information to. Uh, to be anything more than that but uh the first year i worked in uh professional rugby league with the newcastle knights in australia was probably my steepest learning curve that i've ever been involved with and to see what actually worked on a day-to-day basis and then to to have science underpin everything i did obviously but uh, then to become more and more experiential in in the process and to develop uh, a system of training which worked with that particular group of individuals and, and fortunately. Um, similar concepts have been able to transfer from uh, rugby league into rugby and my programming's evolved somewhat but uh, I would say now that it's probably at the opposite end of the scale which is probably 80 plus percent uh, practical, experiential, learned uh, concepts to about uh, 20% of uh, science-based rationales.
1: Yeah, and because I think obviously the trend is for more and more science and more and more technology to, you know, become at our disposal. But I think one of the things that came across from your talk was um, how important, although that is important, how more important it is, the communication with the players. So it's just wondering. Yeah, how... I think... Um, okay. So I think the most important thing with that is the fact that
0: uh, uh, that's that's the biggest thing I've seen in, in my career is the uh, transference of uh, importance onto more of the analytics and uh, the biometrics and other factors involved with GPS and monitoring other, other areas. But again, I still really hark back to the situation that if you, you still need to have that, that coach's educated, experiential eye to interpret that data and just not blindly follow what the, the biometrics tell you, but to, to uh, sit down and talk to the, uh, to the athletes and and to ensure you include them in, in the process of, uh, uh what you're trying to achieve by the use of that particular technology and technology is wonderful don't get me wrong and and I've sort of chased my tail a wee bit to getting as much information as I possibly can to to ask uh somewhat educated questions of the the GPS people and sports scientists that we have on board at Edinburgh in Scotland but uh to actually talk to the player about um simplifying information to ensure that they understand what's going on too and uh, the more you share with the group of people that are doing the business for you each and every day, then the greater success you're going to have in the program.
1: Yeah, definitely. And and part of that communication is, um, you know, find out what the player needs at that time. And I haven't read a lot of your stuff. I, I think you, you're really good at kind of picking what the player needs to work on and, and sort of how you group that with, you know, individuals within in the team. But how do you kind of go about that process of deciding what, what each individual needs to do? Is it heavily reliant on what the coaches want? Is it based on testing data or just positionally what you feel they need?
0: I think it's a, it's a combination of all those factors. I think it's, uh, if you leave one of those people or areas out of the equation, then you're missing a link that uh, could prove to be extremely beneficial for the players long-term development and, uh, and hence obviously the success of the team. But um I have a, a philosophy that I want to sit down and discuss what the player needs with the player first and foremost. And uh, in the past, particularly with the Crusaders, that would probably be every every Monday, uh, the beginning of the week for the the training week. I would sit down with probably a group of 10 individuals over the course of that uh, two- or three-hour block in the morning when the rest of the squad's doing I just They'd come in and out, and I'd have a probably 10- or 15-minute chat to each of those players. So it would take me a month to get through the entire squad of 40-plus. Um, I'm going to reinstitute that with uh, Edinburgh uh, next season so that I get a little bit more fine-tuned from where we were this year. But it takes um, that sh- small amount of time to say, well, what do you feel you need? What's lacking in your game? some of the questions I ask are: uh, well, who is the best player in your position in world rugby? Um, if the player states that he is the best position in world rugby, say, well, what do you need to to keep you in that position? Uh, yeah, often or not, they're not going to be the, the best position uh, person in that position. So what does so-and-so do differently? Or how is their game different to yours? And, and how can we move you towards that? And obviously there's some, some maybe some physical limitations that we can't change. And, um, those aspects but uh, we can improve say acceleration and uh, the person might be uh, not up to par as far as low body strength for whatever reason and then we basically formulate that player's individual week plan inside the team week plan so more or less like a university timetable so you've got sort of uh, lectures that are compulsories like all the rugby related information but everything else then becomes uh, more like a tutorial where you fit into the program where you need to uh, to fit in. So it puts a lot more work on the strength and conditioning staff. And unfortunately, I have some exceptionally good strength and conditioning staff with me and Mark Keyes, my number two, and Jack Walsh, my number three. Uh, and they are just fantastic to work with. And we um, are really evolving into an, uh, an effective uh, strength and conditioning team, which is uh, why I want to be around Edinburgh for um, at least the next couple of years to come anyway. But the, that goes on to one step further in that, um, I believe, in a technique of quadrant management, which I picked up from some business-related journal years, years ago, in that um, you've probably seen it's just a, uh, a box uh, with four areas. And the first area is um, for a minimal training age individual who basically doesn't really know their own body yet, let alone what they need to be doing. So it's um, there's no discussion involved. Um, I'm going to tell you what program you're doing. I'm going to tell you what sets and reps you're doing and basically you earn the right over a period of time to progress to uh, quadrant number two which is we'll discuss a few things now um, give you a little bit more information and and you'll feedback into me but I'll still make the decisions based around your program and then that will move into three over time which I think most rugby players are more or less at but um, we'll discuss uh, we'll input from both sides and then you make the decision as, uh, what you feel the necessity is to do. And then I'll support that or modify it or give you some ideas around that. And the level four, which is, um, uh, probably the trickiest of the lot because you don't want to move someone to level four too early because it's basically no need for any discussion anymore. Um, you basically run your program and I'm here as a facilitator, uh, to, to fine tune a few edges and, uh, I probably have a couple of players in my squad, um, guys that uh, are towards the end of their careers, and they actually want to be strength and conditioning coaches themselves when they've they finished their playing career. So they fit nicely into a quadrant four, uh, but they still often like to be told and, and given ideas of uh, what to do. So they're sort of it's a fluid environment when you get to that level between probably uh, level three and level four quadrant management.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really good way of doing it. And like I've had experience working with players who've had you know nineteen, they've done nineteen pre seasons in their career and you know I'd be pretty arrogant to think that I know better than them how you know what they need to do to get ready for rugby you know so I think that's a really good thing Well,
0: they they the most important resource so if you if you're not using your most important resource then you guess you're going to come up short at some stage
1: yeah definitely um so actually I'd like to talk a little bit about conditioning there's there's a lot of um a lot of different methods uh, used by different clubs and different coaches uh, to improve conditioning. Now, say say you've got an athlete um, who you've deemed needs to get just more aerobically fit, for instance. What what mm-hmm. do you feel would be the best um, or the best approach for that?
0: Well, that's, that's a huge uh, area. Um, <laughs> I guess my my role between the three S&C coaches that we have at Edinburgh, I, I tend to be more towards um, rugby integration and uh, more the conditioning side of things. Um, Mark is a sensational strength coach, so he tends to focus more on that. And Jack Walsh is more involved in speed and uh, the sports science GPS aspect. So the three of us integrate quite well together. So I guess we'd, we'd have a chat initially as a group and uh, the programming would be coming back to me. So Depending on the position of the individual, I, um, I am very big on utilizing weight room circuits. Um, I think the the beastly circuit uh, with the six exercises, uh, big compound exercises performed with exactly the same weight from the the first rep to the last rep of the sixth exercise, so thirty six reps in total, and then straight onto a uh, um, say a watt bike and and riding two ks on the watt bike as as hard as you can, and rotating through that six times is a, is an extremely effective conditioning uh tool to to use within the weight room plus um from talking to players it simulates a lot of the uh the feelings that players are in the in the middle of uh uh maybe 19 or 19 consecutive phases and how they're feeling towards that that blowout stage there so um we'd utilize that with certain individuals um more say uh outside backs where we need to get them up to to speed would be repeat speed activities like uh 40s, 50s, 60s, even up to 80s on a, on a turnaround. Um, we might do 10, 10, 50s going every 30 seconds with a jog through from at the 50-meter mark to the far end of the field and turn around to the goal line and and go again. Um, in off-season, again, if there are, are maybe a tight forward, I'm, I'm a huge fan of fartlek conditioning. I know that's a wee bit old school, but uh, um, it still, to me, gives you the variation paces intensity and uh, unfortunately I've yet to find a golf course here in Scotland that would uh, allow me to do a fartlek conditioning session on it. But uh, if you can get access to a golf course, I think one of the best forms is to um, after just a general uh, say five minute uh, jog pace warm-up to get yourself uh, moving uh, to um, above jog pace for the par fives, um, stride pace up for the par fours and sprint the par threes, you can get, an unbelievably good conditioning session over about six to eight K's uh, with variation in in incline and decline over the course of that. So to me, that's another fantastic conditioning tool that you can utilize for a particular, uh, maybe a forward positioning position rather than say an outside back or something. Um, Or you can even do uh, elements. So I did a metabolic agility session with uh, one of my hookers yesterday, who's not in our game squad today. and it was uh, utilizing a short ladder and uh, then a, a sprint out to a, a colored cone in a, in an arc. So uh, they basically, I'd uh, maybe do a Nicky shuffle through the, the five meter ladder, uh, sorry, the uh, two meter ladder. And then I'd give them a color and they'd adjust to that and sprint out to that uh, cone and, and jog back. And then we'd do uh, 45 seconds worth of work and um, basically um, have a, a one to two work rest ratio. And we were both, uh, I've used a few times, but... Uh, He's quite a fit individual and he was basically more or less fried at the end of that. So it's a an interesting uh, way to add a wee bit of agility and agility under fatigue conditions and also the metabolic factors. Um, Nick Lumley, who's our sevens coach here at uh, Scotland Sevens, uh, has introduced some really fantastic drills on that 45 second clock with a uh, down and ups every uh, five metres. So out and five down, back five down, um, continuing on until you complete almost about 150 metres in 45 seconds and then giving a three and a quarter minute rest period, three minutes, 15 rest period, and then going again and maybe doing six sets of that. We can do the same on the watt bike for the 45 second blast as fast as and hard as you can go for 45 seconds then have three minutes, 15 off. Or one thing we've added to that is uh, a 45 second watt blast. And you're trying to aim for about 750 meters in that uh, 45 seconds and then immediately get off and walk wobbly across to the, uh, the bench press and, do um, a set of 10 uh, dumbbell bench press superset with uh, dumbbell row and do two rotations of the upper body uh, blast. And then by that time, you're ready to go again on the four-minute rolling clock. So all those little little things, uh, again, trying to match the individual, the, the position, the requirements uh, to the available work uh, that we have. And um, again, using their input to give, them, give us some idea of what they feel they want yeah. and then trialing things and working from there.
1: That's great. And there's some, some great ideas there. Um, and it always makes me laugh when you we tell a rugby player, oh, you've got three and a half or four minutes rest and they think, oh, it just sounds easy then. And then when they actually <laughs> yes. do it, they realise that the lactic's horrible. Um, yes. You've obviously, I mean, you just easily reeled off you know loads of different methods there and, and I've read a lot of your stuff on, on the actual strength training and explosive training side of things. Mm-hmm. And uh, you've obviously got a hell of a, a training toolbox. Um, just wondering how how you kind of do you have a system? Do you have it all written down somewhere, or is it all just in your head? Um, <laughs> uh,
0: in my head, that's a fairly scary place to go. Um, <laughs> I think uh, it's a combination. I'll give, I guess I've been fortunate to um, be given a, uh, a writing position with the Lead FTS uh, as a columnist, so I guess a lot of that's sort of archived up on there, so I've always got that to come back to. Um, and also before that I worked. I wrote for uh, GetStrength.com in uh, New Zealand and they've got archives of the stuff I've done there for years. So I guess it's it's written down in, in a lot of places. Obviously, I have hard drives and uh, USBs floating around the place that have got all that material on it, but sometimes it's often easy for me to, if I've forgotten something, to actually go back to one of those archive sites and uh, to see what I've actually written and try and sort of uh, not necessarily reinvent it but um, maybe modernise it for the, the the group of people I have. Um, and I guess it's, it's everything. When you're doing something day-to-day, it's it's um, it's in the forefront of your mind most of the times that you're actually um, even just re- relaxing. And I find that um, when I'm training myself uh, um, that I always have a notebook with me so that uh, I get moments of clarity when I'm in the middle of a set of um, whatever I'm doing and, and I just jot the ideas down quickly so that I don't forget them when I finish my workout. And <clears throat> I often build articles and uh, programs based on, snippets that come into my head during the course of a workout and uh, i think that's a fairly useful tool to um to keep you thinking and keep you uh keep you uh, modern that uh you're training on programs that you want the, pro- the players themselves to use and if i can get through a program not necessarily obviously at the same intensity and loads and things like that but uh um i still want to be able to be in the weight room and testing things out um even at my uh, age of 55 now to to be able to to continue to do things and um, never stop doing them, never stop learning it.
1: Yeah, I, I think that having the notepad on you is, is a great idea because I always, whenever I do a good session, I think, oh, that's a that's really good one. I'll write that down so I remember it, I have it in the bank mm-hmm. and then, you know, something comes up and you don't, you're like, you just completely forget it. Um, so oh, exactly. I'll, def- I'll definitely try and push to, push to keep doing that. Um, actually, this is a question we, we ask all our guests and it's it could, could be a big one but it's, what, what do you think is the biggest mistake that you see rugby players make when it comes to strength and conditioning? Um, I still think um, it's it's
0: aesthetic training for the sake of looking good rather than performance training to improve uh, what they do in their uh, in their game itself. and I mean I've even had that from some of the, the highest uh profile rugby players in world rugby that they want to concentrate on on doing exercises at times that um you know that just has no point uh with rugby so um i guess it's trying to find a a fine line to and we used to have like a uh a finishing uh board where we'd have well you've got to get all the stuff that i need you to do first and foremost done and then if you've got some time left in you in the in the session, sure thing, jump on the uh, finishing exercises and we can actually maybe tailor something for you there. But um, I think it's reliance too much on hypertrophy-based activities. Um, I'm a, a huge believer in the the fact that uh, if you train for strength, uh, size will come rather than the other way around. And uh, I will do some extra upper body uh, hypertrophy work for, for certain individuals, particularly um underweight individuals for positions so that uh, that can be a benefit. But after a player's more or less reached their ideal weight for position and, and ideas like that, I think it's more important to to look at aspects of strength. And, and in our environment, we have uh, a list of our core exercises and what we feel a player, based on our own experiences and also looking at the numbers of the players over the years, should be able to achieve as a, a, um, an ultimate uh, not that um uh you want to stop working towards strength but in some situations it's much better to looking at the um uh, rate of force development rather than the total force development and uh, ensure that people are explosive and powerful as as well as strong um and appropriately sized and and we have a um a flow chart that um determines areas where we want players to actually work which i'm going to talk about uh at the upcoming NSCA conference in uh, New Orleans in uh, July, so uh, and I'll, I'll basically have an article out in the not too distant future after that, as sort of detailing that. So um, something to watch out for in in the months ahead. Yeah,
1: thanks for that, Ash. Um, now, kind of a bit more sort of philosoph- philosophical. Uh, you've worked in both hemispheres of, of rugby now. Um, do you, mm-hmm. what, what sort of differences do you see, whether it's in athletes or or the, how how we do S and C in the different hemispheres?
0: Um, <clears throat> I was shocked when I first walked into the the uh, Edinburgh Scotland uh, weight room and looked at the records boards that were on either end for one for Scotland, one for Edinburgh, uh, and the the strength levels of the players was it blew me away. It was it was far higher than um, the averages that I'd ever worked with in the Southern Hemisphere before. But um, I think that comes at a cost in the fact that uh, um, they often don't move as well because they're focusing primarily on um, uh, uh, fixed-range activities, like they want to try and get their squat to 300 kilos, where they're already existing at seven, 270 kilos, um, or double body weight or 2.5 times body weight, when when ideally you don't want to be pushing for triple body weight, even though I guess with Mike Stone would say that strength is never a liability but uh i think in in movement related sports particularly rugby you um you need to be able to exert that force quickly so um that's one of the biggest things i found the difference between the south and the north that uh, we would spend a lot more time um looking at um greater force development activities and and working off, off the force velocity curve in in our programming rather than um having strength dominate uh, across the board and the other aspect is um skill work that uh, would be done in the Southern Hemisphere. Now. And with Edinburgh now, we're combining a lot more skill activities within the weight room. So players will execute a certain number of passes with our skills coach and then come back in and, and squat and clean or, or whatever their major exercise is for that particular day. So trying to get more and more skill work into the players uh, at different stages of the day, I think there's been a big step forward with uh, with our program this year. But um, uh, not a lot of skill work that I saw, um, particularly in an S&C sense with warming up before the rugby sessions. There was not a lot of uh, S&C combination with rugby drills and, and to to formulate um, a good transition from uh, the pure S&C to the, to the rugby environment. So I think that's um, uh, an aspect that uh, S&C coaches um Need really to work hard on is to to spend time with the position coaches and and talk more and more detail about well, I need to achieve this in my warm up. You need to achieve that. How can we bring the two together and and formulate some sort of conditioning game or um, a skill drill, and then I can look at monitoring the the um, the time in in play type activities and and to get the best best of both worlds out. So I think that's what I've sort of noticed more and more so and. Um, some phenomenal athletes in the Northern hemisphere. And I guess in, in the past sitting back South, it was almost like, well, it's, it's more an environmental factor, but obviously uh Southern hemisphere grounds are harder. We play a lot more in the summer months and uh, people play above the ground. Whereas Northern hemisphere with the weather conditions, not ideal at uh, a lot of times uh, and playing through the winter months, you uh, tend to play into the ground. So it takes that whole speed and power aspect uh, a, a lot out of the scenario. So, I guess that's probably the biggest difference with with uh, the use of training techniques to, to match the environmental conditions, and then um, looking what sort of uh, whether it's expansive type of rugby you want to play, or more uh, ten man forward dominant rugby, and, and obviously the conditions and the uh, playing staff that you have will dominate that uh, aspect as well. Yeah.
1: Um- Actually, just lastly, just to finish up, where can people uh, sort of learn more about you? I know you said you've got your columnist at Elite FTS um, and you've written in the past at Get Strength and, and I assume there's more coming out at Elite FTS?
0: Yeah, um, I think I've got about three or four in uh, in print at the moment in progress. So um, I think I'm up to about uh, July as far as my deadlines are concerned. I, as I said earlier, the, with, with the gym, I can often get a sort of fragment of an article that comes to me in the middle of a set write it down, and then I'll try and flesh that article out into um, into 1, 1,500 words. But the people at Elite FTS have done a, a wonderful job as far as uh, just sort of combining my scratchings into uh, an article which which reads relatively well. And the way they set it out, it sort of makes it look a hell of a lot better than it probably is. But uh, they've done a great job and really happy to be associated with them. Uh, EliteFTS.com uh, – or .net, sorry, is the uh, uh, first one I'd go to Is wanted to read anything that I've written lately uh getstrength.com uh based in New Zealand uh stuff that I've written since the early part of the and uh um UKCA that uh it's a, a article coming out shortly I think it was a video I did post the UKCA in the summer and uh NSCA coming up in July. So. Um, i um, happy to answer any questions from people if they uh, send an email through um, ashley.jones at edinburghrugby.org um, if it's a quick and easy question you should get um, a quick and easy answer coming fired back to you but if it takes a little bit more time uh, it could take a couple more days or something like that but uh, I uh, will always answer anyone who uh, takes the time to actually ask a question.
1: That's brilliant Ashley, um, thanks very much, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on and I'm sure our listeners will uh benefited hugely from from your experience
0: thanks very much jamie it's a great uh, pleasure and honor to, to be interviewed by someone working in the field and uh day-to-day in the trenches as well so all the best to you
1: thanks ashley appreciate that wow that really was a, a great interview loads of uh, great information for anyone want to get fitter faster and stronger for rugby uh Key take-homes for me. Um, Firstly, just some of the conditioning sessions that Ashley um, mentioned. Uh, I hope you guys are making notes, jotted them down, uh, give them a go and and let us know you get on with them. And then also where he he said that, you know, a lot of players just get a bit vain really and uh, and try and train just to kind of look good naked. Um, Obviously, some of that is needed, um, but it's more about Increasing your rate of force development and, and improving things that will carry over to your rugby performance. And that's what it's all about. So thanks, Ashley, for that, that great interview. Uh, and of course, we've got more more interviews to come, more podcasts to come. And um, if you've got any questions you want us to, to ask the ex- experts, just let us know and, uh, and we'll get them fielded to them. Uh, check us out at www.rugbyrenegade.com and uh, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And then, of course, subscribe to us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes, whichever floats your boat. Uh, Subscribe and give us a good review, and uh, we'll keep these coming. Thanks. Till next time. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Renegade podcast. For more quality rugby strength and conditioning information, check us out
0: at RugbyRenegade.com. Rugby
1: Renegade. Building machines.